Thursday. Do you know where your monsters are? Mine are right here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I thought I'd welcome you actually with a little bit of music. We are playing the song Bikini Storm. It is from the band Habanero Surf, based out of Catalonia, up there in Spain. The album is called Costa Brava. You can check out their album at habanerosurf.bandcamp.com. This came out at the end of August. Five tracks. It's a great EP release. Check it out when you're done listening to this episode, of course. There will be a link in the show notes for you to follow to get to their Bandcamp page. I want to welcome you to the show. Episode 386, man. We are getting closer and closer to episode 400. I don't know what we're going to do for episode 400 yet. So if you have any ideas, let me know. I'll drop the contact information at the end of the episode. This week on the show, we have the return of the Weird Wednesday report called in by Jeff Pollier. Now, Jeff has called in two weeks worth of Weird Wednesday reports, so I just put it all together into one segment, and then I'll have a little bit of commentary on that. Also, we have a new segment from Kenny Blows, his famous Monsters of Filmland. You want to call it a recap or reflections on? I I don't know if we decided what we were going to call it, but... It's an awesome segment because what he did is he took the movie that we're talking about this week on the show and went back through the entire Famous Monsters of Filmland catalog and found where it appeared in that magazine. Kind of like an index of where the Wasp Woman turned up. There's also some really cool information regarding the script and what the movie's original title was. I just mentioned The Wasp Woman because that's the movie we're talking about this week here on the show. And of course, you know I'm not doing it by myself. We've got a special guest this time around. We are joined by Tracy Morris. She is one of the co-head muckety mucks over at the Disney Indiana podcast. She was at Monster Bash with me and selling all sorts of cool felted stuff at the Monster Kid Radio table. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Wasp Woman. We're going to talk a lot about a bunch of stuff. I'm really looking forward to it. And yeah, somebody does crash the party. But just for a second, and unfortunately he doesn't stay on the line long enough to hear my response to anything he happens to say. But that's all coming up. You're going to hear all that. You're going to hear about the famous Monsters of Filmland, the Weird Wednesday Report. And at the end of the show, you're going to hear about some upcoming events. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about Rabbit TV and tell you why you really want to sign up for an account over there. It's free. That's all happening right after this. of Frankenstein, a monster created by man, stalked through the country, meaning and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns, and fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. 
Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments... I were... know, I know. I too thought that we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Lugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You see that? They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. Imagine the world around you is nothing but an illusion. Creatures of legend wage endless wars between shadow and light, but you never see it. Even now, dark forces threaten reality as we know it, but most people never know they exist. This is the world I walk in. I am called Byron, and these are my chronicles. The Byron Chronicles, available at ericbosbypresents.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Maggie, look! Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the Earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again. To both of them has come terror in the form of the creeping unknown. went into outer space. Only one of them came back. Came back a strange, distorted creature, haunted and possessed by something beyond human understanding. What was the terrible secret he could not tell them? There's a whole new world out there, a wilderness, uncharted. And he's been there and come back. He's got the map. 
Unlock his mind for me, Briscoe, and find it. I know you can do it. It isn't just a question I know the strain and tension you've been under, but to stop now when we're so close... Brian Donlevy. He dared an experiment that shocked a nation. You've destroyed him like you've destroyed everything else you've touched, Kent. There's no room for personal feelings in science, Judith. An experiment that created the creeping unknown. Quarter around the entire area, evacuate all public, get information to check up every movement that's likely to take place inside this radius tonight. Yes, sir. Warn everyone not to touch anything unusual they may find in the streets. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. Uh, we're going to take a look today at the Wasp Woman and its appearances in Famous Monsters of Filmland. Now, the first mention that we find of this movie from 1959 was in issue number four, which had a very brief mention in its Coming Attractions article, which spoke about how the movie was originally titled Insect Woman, but the name has been changed to Wasp Woman, and that's all it says. And we don't hear about Wasp Woman until issue number 55, May 1969. On the cover of that issue is the famous Lands of the Giants. It was a, the box cover for the Aurora model with the giant snake attacking some people with their safety pin attacking it. And um, inside that issue 55 was an article entitled Animals, Creatures, and Things. How to Tell the It's from the What's and the Them's. And it was an article that talked about different movies, uh, made lists of movies with Beast in the title, list of movies with It's in the title. And, um, and then it uh, veered off and concentrated on two movies. The first movie it looked at was The Crawling Eye. And then the last movie that's featured in this article was on The Wasp Woman. And basically it was a straightforward, complete synopsis of the film. And it would include this excerpt from the script. It actually had a little parenthesis saying script, and there was this excerpt from it. So let's take a look at that. It says, A thing that at first glance might be mistaken for a giant insect attacks him. Predominantly human, its bulging eyes protrude from under a brow covered by silky hair. Each of the eyes is actually a ball composed of hundreds of individual eyes, each with its own iris. The brow spouts two antennae, but the nose is depressed blob of matter surrounding the most gruesome feature of all, two mandible-like objects that jut from the sides of the jaw. There were no pictures from the movie in the article, and uh, there were some pictures around the article, but they were from other monster movies featuring beasties, uh, animals, uh, including a picture from Goliath and the Dragon, a picture from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, One Million Years B.C., and Hercules and the Captive Women. Now, this article was later reprinted in issues 141 and 158. Now, there's another mention of Wasp Woman in issue 95. And issue 95 was from January 1973. And the Wasp Woman is mentioned in an article that is called Attack of the Giant Insects, which was written by Thomas Rogers. Over 30 giant insect movies are given a paragraph description. 
Here's what it was said about the wasp woman. Not many people would do what the wasp woman did. In order to regain her lost beauty, a ruthless woman took injections of wasp enzymes. This not only restored her youth and good looks, but it also periodically transformed her into a sort of were-wasp. Quite often, she would change into the human-sized insect and go out and kill someone. Wasps eat their victims. At the movie's conclusion, the wingless creature fell from the window of a tall office building and died. So that was the brief mention of Wasp Woman in issue number 95. Thanks for sending that in, Kenny. I love that you're doing this, that the movies that we talk about here, you're going through and finding references to them in Famous Monsters of Film line, going back into their back catalog and giving that to us. I'm loving this. Very cool. Listeners, if you have any Famous Monsters of Filmland memories, thoughts, comments, or anything like that, for Ken, let me know. Drop me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and I'll forward that along to him, and he can cover it in a future segment. Thanks again, man. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this dinner will not be born on Earth. come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the earth. Plan 9 from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampire, and Thor Johnson as the walking dead. Turn off your electrode gun! No! No! Stop him, Dennis! I can't get it! It's jammed! Stop him, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. Hi, this is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans? Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horror Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. 
Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. This is the voice of a woman dreaming of her lover. Please, darling, me close. I love you so much. And this, a woman having a nightmare. Let me out! What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you too become a nightwalker. The Nightwalker brings Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck together again in the film Shocker of the Year. Yes, I do have a lover. Tell me his name. I wish to God I could, but he's only a dream. And now, a warning from producer William Castle. Our new picture, The Nightwalker, may force you to dream of things you're ashamed to admit. If you can't stand your own dreams, don't see The Nightwalker. The Nightwalker. Hi, Derek and the Monster Kids. This is Jeff Blair calling in with a weird Wednesday report. On Wednesday, the 29th of August, Joy Cinema in Taggart had what they call Monster Roulette. So this is where Jeff doesn't plan ahead of time. What he does is he has a bunch of movie names in the Mystic Pumpkin, and an audience member draws out what we're going to play. And this time the movie was It. No, no not that it. No, not that it either. This is It, with an exclamation point, from 1967. It was a movie starring Roddy McDowell, directed and written by Herbert J. Leader. And it's about a museum assistant curator that comes in control of a golem, the golem from Hebrew history or mythology, depending on how one looks at it, and uses it to try and uh, further his own ends to both... Uh, get his love interest interested in him and to become the actual curator, a position he's been passed over for because he's too young. Now, that sounds really good, and it could have been really good. Uh, I had two problems. One uh, was with the writing. They kind of made McDowell's character, Arthur Pym, it's like they were going off of Psycho. They, they had him have this thing where his mother is already dead, he treats her corpse as if it's alive, uh, including borrowing jewels from the museum to, um, so she can wear them, and then he takes them back. Uh, if that had been his only foible, that would have been okay, but I think it would have been a much better film if it was the power of the golem that drove him crazy instead of him already being crazy in the first place. Uh, the other problem was actually McDowell's performance. Uh it was kind of over the top. It was a bit comical, especially compared to everyone else. Everyone else treated it so straight. And he was kind of cartoonish in comparison. Uh, it, it kind of surprised me. I expected better of him. Uh, I've read that the uh, female lead, Jill Hayworth, playing Ellen Grove, didn't like being in this movie. Although it didn't show in her performance, she did a fine job. Uh, she has one very brief uh, scene that I thought was rather risky for a 1967 British movie. Anyway, if you haven't, you know, a spare hour and a half, you might want to look this up, but it's nothing, it's nothing great. I would recommend it 
just for silly factor. The golem, I thought, was treated really neat. From what I know of the golem legend, they, they did the golem justice. So that was pretty cool. Hi, Derek and the Monster Kids. This is Jeff Pallier calling in with a weird Wednesday report for the 5th of September, 2018. The Joy Cinema showed King of Kong Island from 1968. And boy, I bet audiences were disappointed when they showed up to see this the first time. Uh, it's the King of Kong Island. There is no King Kong. Uh, it's hard to tell that they're ever, ever actually at an island and not just in the heart of Africa. And... Oh my gosh, what a what a lame movie. It didn't capture my attention at all. I didn't really root for anybody. The IMDb synopses makes it sound pretty interesting, and it makes it sound like a relatively minor character is the feature of the, well, feature. Esmeralda Barrows as Eva the Savage Girl, uh, who is uh, considered this uh, mystic monkey or something. Um, it's just... The plots, and I say plots because it seems to go all over the place. That's the problem. When it goes all over the place, the characters aren't likable. Um, Eva is pretty and half, mostly naked. Her hair is covering her chest. It was probably taped down or glued down. Um, but <laughs> that's about the best thing I can recommend for it. That and there's a teleporting chimpanzee that I never really quite understood what was going on with him or her. You know, you've got uh, gorillas that are so obviously people in suits, and yeah, uh, you know, I don't know how many lira they spent on Italy making this movie, but it was either not enough or it was too much. <laughs> so, uh, this one's a stinker. I, I, would, I would say keep away from this. Uh, find, find yourself something better to watch. Go watch just about any version of King Kong and avoid King of Kong Island. I hope everyone's having a great week and I'll talk to you again real soon. Jeff, thanks for calling that in. I haven't had a chance to go to Weird Wednesday in a while. Still kind of recovering from the whole nose thing. And this past weekend I went to Rose City Comic Con and it just, it took it out of me, man. Even just kind of walking around and, and such. Just my stamina level's not there and it, and it still hurts and that takes a little bit of energy and I don't know if I could really pull off sitting in a dark room for an hour and a half, two hours watching a movie that doesn't sound like was very engaging. I have not seen King of Kong Island. And when I heard Jeff Martin was going to be playing that at the Joy Cinema for Weird Wednesday, I went and looked it up and yeah, it looks like a European film, Italian, and there might be some monkey stuff in it. I mean, you had me at teleporting monkey. Okay. That, that's cool. But I have a feeling you were being sarcastic. Uh, <laughs> As far as it with Roddy McDowell, I have seen that. And you're right. He does play it a little campy, but I really like the monster design in that. That, for me, makes the film. Plus, the movie was released on DVD as part of a double feature with a movie called The Shuttered Room from 1967, which is kind of sort of Lovecraftian. Not really, but, you know, it's one that I really enjoy and it stars Oliver Reed. Man, can you imagine Oliver Reed and Roddy McDowell in a movie together? Has that ever happened? That would have been amazing. Anyway, Jeff, thanks for calling in the Weird Wednesday Report. It's great to have you back in the mix and look forward to seeing what they play next time and hearing your thoughts about it. Yeah, that is it. It! Everyone is afraid of it. Look at the ape in his face. That's what killed the old man. Bombs can't kill it. 
Fire can't burn it. Water can't drown it. Only one man can control it, and he is bad. I'm your master. Lower your arms. I am your master. Bell God, Bell 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 is it. See it. There are some doors that should never be opened. One of them is the door to the shuttered room. I wouldn't take her into that old house, mister. Lesson you want her to end up like this. The terror begins on the road to the house with the shuttered room. There's no hope for Susanna. If she spends even one night in that house. Do I, um, detect a threat there somewhere? Did you feel it? Feel what? When you opened that door, it was like I was standing in front of a refrigerator. The terror is a touch. A sound. A sense of someone watching. That stains two people with the secret of what lies in the shuttered room and beyond. Please, let me go. I have to see my husband. Well, what's wrong with staying right here and passing the time of day with me? Hey, Chief. That sure is a lovely wife you got there. And you know, I hear tell she's just as pretty all over. You wouldn't happen to know what your wife's doing right now, would you? Hey, maybe Ethan knows what this guy's wife's doing. Maybe this guy's wife knows what Ethan is doing. Because maybe they're doing the same thing together. Wait a minute. Let me help you. with the shuttered room and you may never want to sleep again In 1972 American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity Today Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast If there's a TV show that no one else remembers and if you have your buds 
Maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. Out of the darkness of the ancient past, out of the dust of centuries and the inscrutable silence of the unknown come two new adventures in shock and suspense on one sensational motion picture program. The, the Mummy. Mummy. Plus, Plus Curse of the Undead. Fear will freeze you when you face The, the Mummy. Mummy. It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. It walks through bullets like a ghost. Wakened from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it stalks the earth with strangely human desires. The, the mummy. mummy. And on the same program, Curse of the Undead. The haunting story of a faceless fiend who drained the young and beautiful of life. Together on one program, Curse of the Undead, and in chilling technicolor, The, the Mummy. mummy. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. You know, I always say that I want to have her on the show more often, but every time we go to an event and she's there, she ends up on the podcast. And you can hear her every other week on Disney Indiana. Tracy Morris, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Sounds like we need to attend more events together then. <laughs> I'm on board. I'm on board. <laughs> Why not? I'll see you at Monster Batch in a few weeks, okay? I wish. The big screening in August. Yeah, I wish. right. Well, by the time this episode goes out, actually, people will have had an opportunity to go to the big screening at the uh, Ohio event. Uh, I, I wish I could go to that. It just sounds amazing. And then there's obviously the next event happening in October. But I think the next Monster Batch for me is going to be next summer. So I think that's the same for us. Oh, we'll have the memories. Mm hmm. How have things been with uh, you and Scott and Disney Indiana? Uh, we've been keeping busy, speaking and somewhat tied to the subject of today's movie. We recently reviewed Ant-Man and the Wasp, the Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Currently, in Listen theaters. to you try to make a connection here. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the same, although I wish, now that I think about it, wouldn't it have been cool to see them incorporate footage from the wasp woman in somehow i mean they put in them yes maybe next time we can hope get on that marvel i know kevin feige's listening so and it is i believe this movie is public domain correct some of the roger corman stuff is some of it's not and uh, i'll see you and i were talking that about how this is coming out on blu-ray later this year so i don't know who owns the rights to the home release versus theatric who knows some of the stuff's a little up in the air. And with this one and the other Corman films that Shout Factory is now involved with, there's a lawsuit as, as well regarding who's supposed to own the properties, uh, Roger Corman and his, I think his son mm -hmm. or sons. Yeah. So I don't really know. Well, oh, well. So we are covering Wasp Woman today. Yeah. Yeah. That so 
<laughs> the Wasp Puppet 1959. It is a Roger Corman production uh, co-directed with Jack Hill. Corman actually even appears in the film in a small cameo. Uh, he's not obvious. And I think when people think Roger Corman today, they have a very distinct idea of what he's supposed to look like, what he looks like. Back then, well, he, was, he was a much younger, kind of dashing-looking dude. So, I mean, he's in there if you look for him. But before we do all of that, you know there's something we got to do here on the show. And what's that? we got to play the Classic Five, Tracy. Alrighty. Every single time we have somebody on the show, whether they've been on the show or not, we play this game. And for new listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a card game that we play with every guest of Monster Kid Radio. Each card has a question regarding classic monster movies. Might be a this or that, favorite monster movie, what movie do you wish you had seen last? That sort of thing. Call it a game, call it an icebreaker. We call it the Classic Five. Are you ready to play? Yes, sir. Now, I know that Scott and Tracy Morris have their own deck, at least they were supposed to pull out their own deck of the classic five before they mailed the remaining stock to me after monster bash do, do you have one still did we you did. grab one it's sitting right down on the bar excellent well i have new questions so there's no way you could have studied <laughs> <laughs> i am working on a second deck so we've got a new deck in the works i'm going to play some of the questions on you call it a beta test you ready i am up for it all right card number one question number one tracy what classic monster would you like to dress up as for halloween Oh, I'd go with Frankenstein's Bride. That'd be pretty easy. And Scott would make an awesome Frankenstein's monster. So we'll go We'll go obvious here. Oh, he, he would. He's got the height. I'd, I'd like to see that. So with you being Bride, he'd be the classic flat top Frankenstein? Oh, sure. Yeah. His, his hair kind of grows that way anyway, so. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I love you, honey. <laughs> Card number two, what classic monster movie would you show as part of a double feature with Godzilla? Ooh, good question. Um, again, I'll go with an obvious answer, King Kong. We're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. Why, in a few months, it'll be up in lights on Broadway. Kong, the eighth wonder of the world! movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. You know, yesterday I was recording with Chris McMillan, but it was the, the opposite question. What would you show with God? Uh, oh, never mind. I forget what I was saying. Moving on. All right. Card number three. <laughs> I need more coffee this morning. You know that? I did get you up early this morning. Ah, well, you know. Anyway, card number three. Let's see. What is your favorite classic monster design? I'm probably going to go with Creature. And not just because I know how much Creature means to you. I do. I think it's a very interesting design. The mouth, particularly, and just all of the aquatic features that they managed to incorporate into a humanoid character. And this is why you and I are friends. Okay. <laughs> or can still be friends, at least. 
All right, card number four. Let's see here. In your mind, Tracy, what's the most underrated classic monster movie? Ah, I'm having a hard time coming up with an answer for that. I don't know about underrated, but since the first time I saw it, I was really impressed by the first Wolfman. Oh, okay. The the Lon Chaney film? The Lon Chaney, yep. Okay. Solid movie. Lon Chaney. It's hard to go wrong. Is that a jugular? Is that the way Jenny Williams was killed? Yes. Find something? Animal tracks. Whoever is beaten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf beat you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next. All right, and final question. Tracy, which movie do you prefer? Reptilicus or The Giant Claw? I would probably go with Reptilicus. Today was like any other. The hum of daily activity until... Reptilicus. A beast born 50 million years out of time, spreading terror in its path, destruction in its wake, towering over the cities of the world. Reptilicus. Invincible, indestructible. Reptilicus. In color from American International. Even after you see it, you won't believe it. Reptilicus. It's just because you've read the novelization, right? Oh, good God. Yeah. I, <laughs> one of these days, I will have to come on and record a little review of that fanfic. I'm going to call it a fanfic because it, it really, wow. It's something else. Which I think you can get on Kindle now. Uh, I actually have uh, yes. the Dead Tree edition, the paperback. I, I have and, the Kindle version. Oh, boy. It's a book. <laughs> so it makes me feel better about my own writing. I'll put it that way. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, listeners, I, I don't know if I can say it's got the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval, but... Uh, it is not family friendly. We'll put it that way. It is something. It is something. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the, the new version of the Classic Five. How do you feel? I'm looking forward to seeing uh, more of the questions or hearing more of the questions and seeing the deck. Hopefully it'll come out in time for next Monster Bash. Oh, I'm working on it now so that there's plenty of time for us to get the decks printed and, and sent and, and mailed out. So we don't have to worry about any of that right now. And listeners, you can play along at home with your own deck of the Classic Five. We have the original core deck, the Universal, the Hammer films, and the Monster Bash expansions available. I'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. Supposing a more powerful form of royal jelly could be obtained. From the Queen Wasp, for example. Socially, the Queen Wasp is on level with a Black Widow spider. Oh, no, 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 no. There might be danger. Those are my terms, Mr. Fisher. Janice Starlin will be your next guinea. A woman of fantastic desires. Sponsoring a scientist with fantastic theories. And demanding fantastic results. How old do I look? Tell me! How old? Twenty-three.
They're going crazy. Miss Darling will kill her and tear her body to shreds. Okay, the classic five's out of the way. We've chatted a little bit. Shall we talk about the Wasp Woman? That's why I'm here. Like we said, it's 1959, co-directed by Jack Hill and Roger Corman. And the reason Jack Hill was added to it was he ended up doing a little extra to pad out the length. Mm -hmm. Because originally the movie's a little bit shorter, but if they're going to go to television, they need to have certain time requirements met so they can put in commercial or whatever and jack hill was involved with that i am noticing that i'm saying a lot of or whatever in this episode listeners i'm sorry i still have not had enough coffee the movie stars susan cabot who did a couple of genre pictures did she's one of these people who did a lot of work in b movies Mm -hmm. roger corman that sort of thing unfortunately she had a sad end and we'll talk about that at some point uh, in this conversation not to bring it down but yeah Unfortunate, but she's our lead. She's the Wasp Woman, and she looks nothing like the monster on the movie poster. Yeah, I find that fascinatingly disingenuous, shall we say? <laughs> Very Ed Wood-like of them, or even Hammer film of them, to have this design for the poster. I get the impression the poster was designed before the film was. Mm-hmm. To be fair, it would have been a lot harder to design a costume slash makeup to match, have a wasp body with a human head. So I'll give them that. We are talking Roger Corman. We're talking buck and a half filmmaking. So <laughs> maybe, maybe a buck 75. I don't know. Oh. There is some acid being used in the film. I, I, I Well, I, I do like the image of the Wasp Woman, but it feels very, hey, the fly worked. Let's do this, you know, because mm-hmm. in the fly, you do have that at the very, very end. Of the film, spoiler for The Fly, if people haven't seen it. Yeah, as, as you were saying, uh, Ms. Cabot did most of her work in genre films. She did a lot, several westerns, other B-movies. Um, it looks like, from what I, the digging I did, she worked with Corman like five or six times. Yeah. He liked her quite a bit. She was she was a bit of a party girl in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. A little bit, you said we'll go a little bit more into her background. Yeah, she was definitely, for me, the best part of this film her work as janice starlin oh she does a great job i mean she's committed and what a swan song to go out on this is really her last film role uh second to last according to imdb i think you know the i was looking at that and the second to last or the last was a tv role it looked like so so i don't know if that counts yeah but she did do quite a bit for corman including the longest corman title i've ever seen the saga of the viking women and their voyage to the waters of the great sea serpent Ships of their own making, sleek and wind-fast, Viking women set out to combat the unknown terrors of uncharted seas. In spite of the fables told of the gigantic, the gargantuan, the fearsome great sea serpent. After unbelievable adventures, they reach the land of Stark the Cruel, the vicious, who holds men captive and Viking women chattels. Turning them over to men who take women in pursuit of violent pleasures. Pleasures that must end in the thrust of the spear into warm flesh. See the dance of desire, prelude to orgiastic revelries that only ancient civilizations knew. 
know the best elements of women and the worst appetites of men. But one of the Viking women has the evil serpent of jealousy in her heart. I've much to offer a man. That's true. And someday I hope you will choose a worthy warrior for your mate. Kill them. Kill them both. See, the fires of hate flare into the consuming flame of Hades. See, Vikings choose the terrors of the great sea serpent to that of the grim old savages. See, the lost legend of the great sea serpent. There, yeah, I, I could just see the title card. There's no room for anything else except the title. I don't know how they managed to put anything else on the movie poster. That, that's <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but they did. They bolted it off. She does a really. She is the highlight. She does a really good job in the film. I also really liked the other female, I guess, co-lead or, or supporting actress Barbara Morris, who also did some Corman work and had worked for Susan Cabot before. She plays Mary Dennison, who I believe is would you call her a secretary type, administrative assistant type? It was a little confusing because there was her character Mary Dennison, and she also was kind of Genesis' confidant. But there was another secretary slash receptionist, Maureen Reardon, mm-hmm. who I kind of dug. I'm not sure why she was in the film completely. She added some great comic relief. There's a couple of amazing scenes where she's doing this code switching between her New York accent when she's talking with her friend. And then she picks up the phone and all of a sudden she's got these cultured tones of a company receptionist. I do like her, too. I do like her, too. I, I feel like the, the women in this film, and I respond well to this, which is one of the reasons why I like Tracy and, and I love my wife. I respond well to fully developed female characters. <laughs> yes, I just called Tracy a fully developed character. Um, I thank you. I, I do prefer my, my female characters, my women, to have more than just let's put them on screen and scream for a little while. Mm -hmm. I like to have a little bit of agency and that's one of the reasons why I really like this movie is I I find it to be an interesting uh, perspective on the monster movie while putting in some what I would assume would be and this is why I'm glad Tracy wanted to talk about this film because she's a woman and I'm not what I would assume to be some concerns that society puts on women regarding age, youth, Mm -hmm. beauty, that sort of thing. So I, I really responded well to this film from that point of view, there's some real sociological things potentially happening here, or it's just a happy accident. Either way, I, I really appreciate the story and what the women are doing in this movie. Yeah. We don't normally expect a whole lot out of Roger Corman films, but he does occasionally find a story, like you said, that's more than just a monster movie. I mean, if we think about Little Shop of Horrors, mm-hmm. there's more to that than just giant plant eats everybody. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I've heard amazing things about The Intruder. That's the one I was just about to bring up. Yeah, there, sometimes you end up with these messages and these stories and these examinations of things that are happening in society. And I love that about certain genre films. Mm-hmm. I, I love that about especially the 1950s because there's such a oh, yeah. period of flux in American history and and relationships with people and politics and and everything going on in the world you end up seeing these things pop up in these genre movies it's just a neat way to kind of examine them through the lens of a monster movie not that the intruders are monster movie the intruders a more serious drama 
thing that deals with racism, right. but still, it's it's a Corman production, so we're gonna lump it in there. Kind of kind of dancing around it a little bit. The, the overall story of the Wasp Woman is pretty light. It's not hard to follow. Susan Cabot plays the head of a makeup firm. She also happened to be the head model mm-hmm. of the firm, and the sales are going down. And the men in the boardroom tell her the reason the sales are going down is because she stopped posing for the photos. She stopped modeling the makeup and people did not want to, or they say the consumers did not want to, um, I guess, admit that they're aging or or buy something from an aging woman or model. It's it's a little fuzzy to exactly what they're saying because I don't think they want to flat out say it's your fault, but there is this kind of fuzzy kind of well, you're aging out and the demographic's not there anymore. So she goes on a kind of sort of quest to figure out how to bring the youth back. And apparently the royal jelly of the queen wasp will do it, which I'd never heard before. But I know when I get to be a certain age, maybe I'll try it. It's (laughs) not a thing. Wasps do not create royal jelly. I went out and did a little bit of digging on Wikipedia. And yeah, that's that's so not a thing. Oh, man. (laughs) Come on. But you're, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, Janice Starlin, she's the head of her own company. She's been in business for either 16 or 18 years. Those are the two dates that are kind of bandied around there. And as you pointed out, she is a more mature woman at this point. And you're right, it's the men in her boardroom, because there are several women in the, on the board as well, and they're the ones kind of pointing out, yeah, um... We're not seeing you on the covers anymore, and people don't want to face the fact that they're aging along with you. Which brings up the fact, why not just use old photos of her? But, eh. Yeah, right. I mean, you didn't lose the negatives, did you? (laughs) Because then we wouldn't have the rest of the story is the quick answer. This is true. This is true. And really, I don't think she's... uh, I'm a dude. Okay. I still think she's a pretty lady. Yes. I don't I don't have a problem with that. Really to communicate that she's getting older, they they tie her hair back tightly and make her wear glasses. That's yeah, really she, about it. Yeah, they they dressed her a little more dowdy, gave her an unflattering hairstyle, did the glasses. Now they did put like some makeup under her eyes to make her eyes look baggy. But they didn't overdo it with the age makeup, which I appreciated. I don't know if that was intentional or they just didn't want to spend the money to go that far. It could be either one, considering who made the film. Yeah. And it was also her acting changed. At the initial scenes with, with the older her, she was very brusque, kind of standoff, very businesslike. And then later on, once she feels the effects of the youthening serum, she is much more smiling. She's engaging with her board members, almost kind of teasing them a little bit. So that, the power of her, of the acting I think showed as much the age difference as did any physical appearance. That's what really did it for me actually in the movie is that, okay, maybe they're doing some things subtly with the makeup, but it's really her performance that sells it. And that's one of the things that I respect and, and really enjoy about the flick is Susan Cabot's performance here through all of it, whether she's wearing a wasp woman head or They've got her hair pulled back, or she's almost kind of flirting with people. Mm-hmm. She really does carry the film. It's her movie. She is the Wasp Woman, and uh, she owns it. I really liked it. Me too. I really like her. 
because this is a monster movie, a Corman film, and we're talking about it on MKR, things are not going to go well. And I already mentioned the the wasp woman head mm-hmm. as she becomes more and more reliant on the royal jelly of the queen wasp. <laughs> yeah, it takes a toll on her physically. I, I do want to see like a jar of like just wasp royal jelly. Make it like grape or something. It doesn't matter. But, you know, just like a jelly jar. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and sell that at Monster Bash, you know. Oh, that would go over really well. <laughs> or, or do a lotion. I mean, uh, Dr. Zinthrop recommends the the stronger version of the extract using it as an emollient lotion. Yes. There you go. I like it. So c- <laughs> can we talk a little bit about Dr. Eric Zinthrop? Yeah. Uh, played by Michael Mark. Who'd done, again, quite a few genre pictures. He was in The Son of Frankenstein. He was in the original Frankenstein. He was the father of the child Frankenstein's monster throws in the pond. So he's been doing quite a bit in a lot of movies that we love. Mm -hmm. He actually started working in the late 20s, probably in silent films back then, and uh, had a a pretty long career uh, through the late 60s. This was his last film, actually. Was it? Uh, According to the sources I consulted. Okay, okay. He did do some television Mm -hmm. uh, after this, uh, but yeah, he was in Return of the Fly, Attack of the Puppet People, and then, of course, we mentioned the Universal Pictures. Did quite a bit. Did you like him in the film, or or what were your thoughts on him? Yeah, I really liked him. Um, He meant well. He was, uh, again, a very focused science. He was interested in his project. And the only thing I would kind of fault him with is he didn't do enough testing before he reached out to Janice Starlin. But as we find out with the prologue, which was filmed after the fact, we find out why, because he got fired from his previous job. How do you make the leap from, I'm a beekeeper scientist to, I'm going to go work for a makeup company? I, I don't know... I mean, I guess there's science involved in makeup, but... In the prologue, I think he explained he was already doing research on the anti-aging properties. And just to kind of clear up something that I said earlier, I keep saying Jack Hill, Roger Corman co-directed. Corman directed the bulk of this. Jack Hill directed <laughs> the uh, the prologue and stuff. I, I think I said that earlier, but I just want to make it clear that I, I know that, so... <laughs> yeah, and there is quite a bit of, I think, a, a bit of a tonal difference between the two, in particular, Zinthrop's performance... He seems a little wackier, for lack of a better term, in the prologue. But his accent isn't there. So it's like all of a sudden when he meets Janet, he's got this kind of Eastern, slight Eastern European accent going on. And I found that just a tad jarring. It's like he forgot, the actor forgot in the meanwhile, oh yeah, I was supposed to sound like a European. Well, how, how many years had passed? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a couple of years later, I guess. I don't know. And again, we're talking about buck fifty filmmaking. So sure, it's not like they can go back and redub it. Although they could have, maybe they should have. They do seem like two different characters if you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Because of that, but I do like him as well. Yeah, I, I like the the wacky kind of or the the mad scientist type. Even though this guy's a little bit more subdued. Mm-hmm. So I do like that a lot. Uh, he was. I mean, really good. He's another one of the, the solid points of this film. This film's filled with some pretty solid acting. Yeah. I also really liked um, Arthur Cooper. He was another scientist that worked for Janice Starlin. 
And he comes off as kind of a trusted advisor of hers. They, they first interact right after that initial board meeting. And she seems a lot more at ease with him than some of the other people she interacts with throughout the film. I was expecting the first time I saw this, I was expecting there to be a setup. They set up a love interest between the two of them. And I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. You know, that's something else that you didn't see in this movie, which again, a lot of times in these lower budget genre films or even just mainstream films, the, the women's goals seem to be to land a man. Well, you know, and, and you don't have that in here. Well, we do have Mary Dennison, her secretary, uh, dating Bill Lane, who I'm still not sure what he actually does for Starlin Industries. (laughs) Uh, Played by Anthony Isley, who, again, solid performer, lots of film credits to his name, including being in a movie that I've talked about here on the show not too long ago called The Mighty Gorga, which, Tracy, if you've not seen, you got to see. Doesn't ring a bell, but I'd have to uh, go back and take a listen and see if it it comes back to me. Oh, boy. The Mighty Gorga. Um, I haven't actually talked about it proper on the show, uh, but it has come up in conversation a couple of times with people. It is from 69, and uh, Elvira hosted it once. Ah. So it's that kind of movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's, It's... it's a winner, man. It's a movie. But he was also in Dracula versus Frankenstein, which people know that I love. Mm-hmm. So I think he's solid. But you're right. You know, why is he in the film? I don't, you know, what is his role? What is his position within the company? I, uh, yeah, he's he's the one that kind of has the whole suspicions, original suspicions about Zinthrop, thinking that he's some sort of con man and we got to dig into his background. Mm-hmm. He and Arthur Cooper both are are convinced that something weird's going on because Janice Starlin, she goes ahead and gives this guy who just walked in off the street, his own lab, pretty much carte blanche in terms of requesting funding and isn't really letting anybody else into whatever he's researching. So I, again, I can kind of see why they're, again, they're concerned about her and the company. They're not just, you know, trying to tear into it into things they're wanting what's best for janice as well as the company i don't want to turn this into the imdp podcast where we just read things off the imdb but i want to share this because it's a quote that uh william Rorick, uh, arthur cooper has in the film i'd stay away from wasps if i were you socially the queen wasp is on the level of the black widow spider they're both carnivorous. They paralyze their victims and take their time devouring them alive. Strictly a one-sided romance. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I was taking notes while I was watching the film, and I think that's the point where I jotted down is Arthur Basil exposition. <laughs> now I'm no beekeeper. I, I don't know these things about wasps, but is that? I don't even know. I don't. That's not true, is it? I'm not sure either. I would imagine. I mean, it's the same setup where there's a single queen and multiple drones, but I I think he was confusing it with a praying mantis. <laughs> they take so. their time devouring their mate. I'm like, what? No, well, that's not. Again, we, we needed that little bit of foreshadowing. Uh, true, true. Which, again, when the movie was originally made, we didn't have that whole prologue sequence 
that gave us more background on the bees and the wasps and the whole thing. So I can, again, I can kind of cut them some slack for giving us this info dump right at the beginning. <laughs> we needed that Jack Arnold science lesson. You know, we, we yes. needed that, that five to ten minute uh, sequence where we have a lot of slow close-ups of like a beehive. You know, while we have the scientists telling us how bees work afterwards. Yeah, But we're focusing on wasps, so how come all the stock footage was of bees? It's another really good question. I don't know. Because <laughs> they couldn't find stock footage of groups of wasps would be my guess. How hard would that have been, though? I don't want to go messing with a nest of wasps. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Overall, I like the movie quite a bit. Um, it's it's a fun, short, breezy kind of movie. And it's got some great music, which apparently turned up in a lot of Roger Corman films. Yeah. Again, I did I did a little bit of digging. Um, the music was apparently by Fred Katz, who's also known by for being a jazz cellist. Mm-hmm. He produced several scores used and reused in Corman films. I saw some quote, I, I don't remember who it was now or where I found it, but basically saying that every time that Corman reached out to Fred Katz for a, a score, he'd pretty much just kind of cobble together something from his previous scores and sell it as a new piece. I, I do have to say whoever the sound or score editor f- for this film was, they had a really heavy hand. They did. It was, to me, the ominous music was just overused, and there were all these stingers, and it was just like, something exciting is going to happen. Something exciting is going to happen again. It's like, really? Just let us catch our breath. (laughs) See, I would like that as like a standalone listening experience, just because I love this kind of music. Mm -hmm. But it is very over the top and happens throughout the entire film. Uh, The film doesn't give you a chance to kind of breathe. You're absolutely right. But I dig it. But yeah, it's definitely a a score of its time and of its genre. I will will give you that. Yeah, there's there's no question there. It definitely feels like a B-movie, a monster movie, a Corman picture. Right from the very beginning, you've got the titles over a bunch of Bs. And you've got that bah, 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 mm-hmm. music, and it, it doesn't let you go. It tells you right up what's going to happen. Just the music itself tonally sets the mood. And I do like the sound effect of the bees buzzing in the background whenever they come up. Just, you know. Again, it's, it's bees, True. not wasps. I don't think wasps sound like that. You know, it's, let's, let's see, 1959. I mean, I know people knew what wasps were. I, I don't know. Yes. It's just it was easier to get that sound clip. Either get it or recreate it somehow. You know. Although knowing Corman, I wouldn't be surprised. It's just like, here, take this <laughs> sound equipment and go record something at a mm-hmm. bee farm somewhere. Maybe that's what they had access to. That's the only person that would let them on you know, their property to <laughs> record the sound. Could be. So um, the story was written by Leo Gordon based on an original story by Kinta Zertouche. Which is a cool name. Yeah. You'd think... It would be easy to find information on that unique of a name, but there's not a lot out there. As best I can figure out, she was one of Corman's assistants. Okay. And according to Fred Olin Ray, he wrote a book called The New Poverty Row, Independent Filmmakers as Distributors. 
He says the wasp woman supposedly sprang from a magazine article that Corman read dealing with the benefits derived from royal jelly, a substance produced by queen bees. He bought this original story from his assistant, Kinta Zertouche, and paid Leo V. Gordon $1,200 to rewrite it. Hmm. Now, Leo Gordon, I associate with being an actor. Yes. Not necessarily a writer, including uh, a way to connect this to Disney if you really wanted to. He played Wyatt Earp in an episode of The Adventures of the Young Indiana Jones. Ah, I didn't, I didn't dig quite as deeply as my uh, Disney Indiana co-host usually does <laughs> to get those Disney or James Bond connections. Uh, <laughs> I did note that he was on Adam-12, Leo yeah. Gordon was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I found an interesting quote saying that he had trouble being taken seriously as a screenwriter because he was six foot two and very imposing. And he said, apparently people think screenwriters should be like five foot eight, five foot ten with a pot belly. Oh, no. <laughs> and glasses. Man, I'm six four. I'm not going to have a career as a writer at all, am I? <laughs> uh, you know, with, with somebody who looks like him, though, I mean, he looks like a Western actor, a rugged mm-hmm. Western actor. And like I said, he played Wyatt Earp. He appeared in the movie Maverick in 94, did a lot of television, uh, did appear on Fantasy Island a couple of times, which is, I think is kind of cool. Yeah, and he, yeah, he played um, a couple of movies that involved with um, John Wayne, mm-hmm. another large man. He's probably about the only one who could actually face up to him eye to eye. That's a really good point. Yeah. But as a writer, this may have been his last screenplay. He did write some episodes of the TV series Maverick mm-hmm. as well. Oh, actually, I take that back. Not necessarily his last writing gig. I'm looking at his credit list right now. And the reason this turns up in 1995 as a screenplay for him is because it was remade in 95. So they gave him credit there. But he did also co-write or write Attack of the Giant Leeches. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he did write quite a bit. <laughs> Is what I'm saying. Uh, Mm -hmm. So to have him involved with this film in that way as a a writer, of course, you know, he's probably somebody that that came out of the Roger Corman school of writing. I mean, Dick Miller wrote a lot for Roger Corman as well, even though most people know him as an actor. Right. And that doesn't surprise me that he would try to get double duty out of his stable of workers. Which blows my mind that, he actually paid for Fred Katz to do the score every time, even though it's basically the same music. He would double dip so often with sets, even with like the terror, you know, he would double dip so many times with, with actors and, mm-hmm. and contracts and how many times we have them on set. Why pay the same for the same score over and over and over again? Um, That's the one thing, the one anomaly. Maybe Corman's tone deaf and he can't tell the difference. Oh, just a thought. Interesting. Well, Roger Corman, I know you're listening. Why don't you call in and let me know? <laughs> uh, somebody else who's involved with the film that I want to just give a shout out to is Daniel Haller, who did a lot of work with Corman. But the reason Daniel Haller is important to me is because of the th- he was involved in the three Lovecraft films of the classic era, uh, or era, era, classic era. <laughs> There's a, a slip. He was involved with the three Lovecraft films of the classic era, uh, Die, Monster, Die, The Haunted Palace, and The Dunwich Horror. He uh, was the art director on one of them and directed the other two. He also did art direction on The Wasp Woman. He was somebody else who did a lot of work with Corman. And someday I'd like to do a a feature or a special or even just write a column, I don't care, or an article 
about Daniel Haller because I'm just fascinated that he somehow ended up in that role of the Lovecraft guy for them. Interesting. Yeah, you we say art director of the Wasp Woman. Mm, not sure he had a whole lot to do. The the sets were pretty basic. Ninety percent of the film was set in either generic offices or a generic lab. Somebody had to go and perfectly space all the glass bottles on those shelves in the background to make those shelves look as full as possible, even though they didn't spend enough money to buy enough glass bottles to fill those shelves. So somebody had to do that. That's true. <laughs> and somebody had to go find a set, a pair of guinea pigs to use as the old version of the rats. <laughs> I've, I've, yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not a rat. That's a guinea pig that when it gets injected with the serum somehow becomes a rat well that's um science that would make me more concerned yeah (laughs) does this mean i'm going to change from a human into a gorilla uh (laughs) now this movie took place in the 30s maybe (laughs) (laughs) that seemed to be the heyday of the the ape man true yeah true so yeah, that that was another little thing. It's like, okay, I see where they were going with this. They wanted that obvious physical transformation, but again, a little bit of basic biology research would have been helpful. Wasps, bees, rats, guinea pigs. Meh. Yeah. Here we are. We're talking about a movie in which a woman kind of sort of turns into a wasp human hybrid. And we have no problem with that. Yeah, and we're complaining about the science behind <laughs> Well, you know, they're not really wasps. They're bee Oh, it's a guinea yeah. <laughs> I would have actually, re-watching the film for this episode, I would have liked a little more foreshadowing of that transformation. I mean, we do see Janice kind of getting headaches and, and, you know, acting a little off. And there's a scene where Dr. Zinthrop, there was a, a cat that was um, used as one of the test animals. It changed back into a kitten, of course. And there's a scene where it viciously attacks him out of nowhere. That kind of wasn't enough for me. I would have liked maybe one or two more clear instances that something was going wrong. Other than the ominous music, which has been going on through the whole film. Yeah, the cat thing just kind of happens and then it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah, the fact that he kills it and then incinerates it was kind of like that's heartless well and you know i'm a cat person so of course i kind of now this is one of the movies that i'm glad when to say didn't watch with me i I love it when she watches movies with me she's the only cat that i've known that's paid that much attention to the tv screen i used to watch movies with cat and lovey of course but when say she's just focused on the tv screen and whenever there's an animal she gets kind of perked up and excited she didn't get to watch this one with me so intentionally or uh no i I, (laughs) honestly i've kind of forgotten about the cat thing um Mm -hmm. when i sat down to watch the movie i didn't remember it um so it wasn't intentional but i don't know maybe i'll sit down and watch it with Wednesday at some point and see what she thinks (laughs) i probably won't care for it yeah, probably not. She'll she'll hear the sound, and that's about it. Uh, it was also unclear to me on this rewatch whether Zinthrop's car accident, where he kind of walks out into traffic, it almost felt like that was a suicide attempt. It did, and I'd seen this movie before, mm-hmm. but I don't remember it having 
that dark element to it. I, I guess the last time I saw it, I kind of just kind of fixated on, hey, there's a cool looking monster design, you know, and oh, you know, there's a woman lead and she's not just trying to fall in love. It's awesome. I, I didn't really f- focus on that. And this time when I watched it, that really kind of stuck with me. Like, he did this terrible, this terrible thing happen with a cat and, you know, he's realizing things aren't going to work out and, you know, he's really created a monster and started her on this path of destruction. I, he's just going to go end it. That's the impression I got too. Good. I'm glad it wasn't just me. He's got this kind of dazed look on his face as he walks into the street. Yeah. I, I think it was meant to show that just that he was distracted, but he, to me, yeah, it came off as a suicide attempt. It reads very differently. It also made me kind of flash back the way it was staged to Plan 9 from Outer Space. It is staged a little bit like that. I, I, I'm glad you said that because I got that same vibe. And I, and I said that he's got this dazed look on his face, and he does. But the actual shot of him walking into traffic, you don't see his face until he comes falling back into screen. Right. And he's got, I guess, blood or something on his face. It's not very graphic. It's not very gruesome. Mm-hmm. But at, before you get to the, the shot of the, the feet, it, it's clever because you know he was wearing the makeup before he fell back into the screen. It's a very clever way of doing it. I like that. But yeah, it, it reads much darker than I think the filmmakers intended. Now, what didn't read as dark as the filmmakers intended, at least for me, was the actual wasp woman makeup. You know, I like the idea of it. Yes. The execution... Uh, it could have been better. Yeah. I think less would have been more if they had kept her more in the shadows and we just saw maybe a suggestion of the antenna, a suggestion of a stinger. I think that would have been so much more effective than to see this bug-eyed monster face and i think they even realized that it wasn't that great because they used a lot of soft focus on it which to me just made it look worse yeah i mean it it looks nothing like what we saw in the movie poster of course we talked about that a little bit and uh, the makeup was created by grant keat and if his credit list is to be believed online this was his second film okay learning curve i'll give him that but he didn't do a heck of a lot in terms of makeup anyway so i don't know if this is just you know, where they found the guy, I don't know anything about the back guy's background, what his training was, what his history was with makeup. I think it works for what it's supposed to be, but it could have been a lot better. A lot better. But they can't all be the fly, I guess. Yeah, and I think they were inspired by the fly and wanting to make it look gruesome, wanting to make it look startling. But again, in the keeping with more of the tone of the overall film, I would have liked it to be more spooky than in your face. Yeah. I I agree. I feel like there are elements in this movie where they could have shifted the tone just a little bit one way or the other. Yeah, make it over the top drive-in fair, which is what they ended up doing with it. Mm-hmm. But but push a little bit further. Don't don't skimp on some of the effects or Take it the other way. Go more Val Luton with it. And I, I think it could be really interesting if they had gone the other way, gone a little bit more dark with it. That would have been fascinating. You know, keep it in the dark. Keep it in the shadows until the end. And at the end, still don't show a heck of a lot of mm-hmm. it. I do respect that it's actually her. It's actually Susan Cabot in the makeup. Yes. In the, in the headpiece, which she didn't have to. 
but maybe Corman didn't want to pay for another actress. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. So I do appreciate that it's actually her in the suit, but I don't know. I mean, I like the design by itself, but in context of the film, it could have gone one or the other way. Yeah. Does that make sense? I agree. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wouldn't turn down the opportunity to have an action figure of the Wasp Woman. Just, just saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we'll talk more, maybe not an action figure, but we'll talk more about a, a possibility for that later in the show, won't we? Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, you tease. <laughs> <laughs> but let's finish our discussion of the Wasp Woman first. Yeah. So we're talking about Susan Cabot, and we mentioned earlier that her end probably wasn't the, well, Probably no, probably about it. Her her end wasn't the best. She had some issues, some mental health issues, and ultimately, she died at the hand of her own son. Yeah, I I read about that too. There's a really interesting article about her that I stumbled across. Um, it was written this past January. Okay, it's over on takimag.com. T a k i m a g dot com. Written by Joe Bob Briggs. Okay. And uh, one of the uh, comments I pulled out from it, talked about, talking specifically about the Wasp Woman, he said, This turned out to be her, Susan Cabot's principal skill in Hollywood, to take abominable material and do something with it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, he goes into her later years and her mental health issues, her son's mental health issues. And um, yeah, like you said, it's, it's not a pretty ending. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I you mentioned that article. It's like, oh, I need to read this thing. And men were always falling in love with Susan Cabot, and Susan was always letting them. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a great sentence. But yeah, it, it's it's really unfortunate. I mean, she she did have uh, a highly publicized or or notorious, I suppose, maybe romance with King Hussein at one point, but. Yeah, she she had some issues uh, with some mental health. I think there was talk of suicide at one point, and then her son killed her. And that's mm, really unfortunate. She comes to a very similar end in the movie as well. She had, I think, four victims. Well, three three victims, Arthur, the Night Watchman, and the Nurse. And then she also attacked Mary, her friend and confidant. Mm -hmm. And that was the point at which Zinthrop and I think was Bill in that too. She gets acid thrown at her and then she gets pushed out a window to fall to her death. Carbolic acid. Carbolic acid. Carbolic yes, specific, acid. Nice big label on it. <laughs> Maybe that's what Daniel Haller did was he had to put on that, that handwritten label on the bottle. There we go. <laughs> And you mentioned earlier that it was actually Susan Cabot in the costume mm -hmm. and that she actually got hit with that bottle, too. And it, while it was supposed to be a breakaway bottle, it has been filled with water. So it actually hurt like crazy when it hit her. She got bruised, didn't she? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Accord, according to one of the, uh, the stories I wrote or I read, pardon me, she she took some damage for this film. Mm -hmm. She Took her lumps. She apparently liked working with Roger Corman, though, despite getting hit in the head with a bottle of water. <laughs> <laughs> he gave her a lot of freedom that she couldn't find anywhere else and with any of the other studios. And I don't know if Roger Corman gave her opportunities to do more or just kind of let her do more because he had Susan Cabot under contract. Mm -hmm. And you're Roger Corman. You know, what are you going to do? 
Yeah. It's not like you can afford to fire her and replace her. And for that matter, wasn't Corman usually working on multiple productions at the same time? More than likely. I mean, most of the sets on this film were borrowed sets from other productions, so probably. So it may be that the freedom he gave her was more out of necessity, that he didn't have the time to be as controlling as other directors might have been. I mean, Corman's pretty notorious uh, for, I don't know, kind of working as a, I don't internship's not really the best word, but a lot of people went through the Corman School of Filmmaking, Mm -hmm. uh, both in front of and behind the camera. And, you know, we're we're saying that maybe he couldn't afford to let somebody not do what they wanted to do or wasn't able to be as focused or present as a director because he's doing three or four movies at the same time. But, you know, he really did put a lot of people through their paces Mm -hmm. and and graduated them into more prestige and bigger productions. Oh, sure. Uh, and that sort of thing. And, and still did that up through the 80s and, and 90s. So I don't, I don't know what it's like these days. I feel like with the movies that his name's associated with these days, it's that's kind of where people want to go now. It's not like they're just kind of passing through to go into bigger and better things. Now it's a, a symbol of prestige to be involved in a Roger Corman production. <laughs> that's kind of right. the end all be all. It's, it's almost gone full circle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. People want to be in a Corman film, whereas before it was kind of a rite of passage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I can see that makes perfect sense. (laughs) Overall, I enjoyed the movie. It's it's fun. It's a little ham-fisted, heavy-handed a few times here and there uh, with the makeup design and and the the music. and the Oh, yeah, the pacing. Go ahead. Yeah, the pacing was – it wasn't bad – a little uneven. There's a, a driving montage that went on for way too long. It was uh, it was obvious to me that okay, this is where Roger realized he needed to pad the film out. So let's have the private investigator and somebody drive. Let's have them drive around the city mm-hmm. trying to track down who Zinthrop really is. So the, my first exposure to this film was not surprisingly through Mystery Science Theater 3000. And I'd watched it a couple times on their show, Cinematic Titanic, which is kind of a spinoff of MST3K. They've covered it as well. But I do feel this movie stands up as watching it as a straight film on its own merits. Yeah. If, if you're into, can get into the mindset of the type of movie it is, you have your expectations set appropriately it's a decent film. It's got some interesting things to say, as we mentioned earlier, about women's role in business and expectations on their appearance versus men. And it was nice to see Starlin treated as the boss of her own company. In the board meetings, no one really ever challenged her authority. I really liked that, too. I really liked that, too. They, they pointed out these are the things that are happening and this is why, but it was never blamed on her per se. It was blamed on her appearance, but not on her being unable to manage the company. No, and, and that's another thing that I really enjoyed about the movie. She's treated, I mean, sure, they blame the fact that she's getting older, but she's treated as an equal in the boardroom and, and even deferred to as the boss, which she is. Right. No, nobody's mm-hmm. ever trying to undermine her. And, and I did appreciate that quite a bit in the movie, too. I had jotted down one quote from Zinthrop that I really liked that I I think was a good synopsis of her character. Okay. He, He said to Janice, I know you are a good woman, even if you do not like others to know it. 
I like that. Yeah. I think she kind of had to be that way, especially there portrayed that way at the beginning, because again, a woman, so much more is expected of a woman in a position of power than it is of a man. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't afford to be nice in some ways. There's that line, that, that fine line that women, and it sucks. And I am sorry this is the way it is. And, you know, I, I'm sorry for you, Tracy, and for Brenda and all the female listeners out there. You know, if you're assertive, if you're confident, how many times do you get called mm-hmm. something horrible? Yeah, bossy is the least of it, but yeah. How often do you hear men being called bossy versus women being called bossy? Or, or some other word. Starts with a B. I'm not yeah. going to say on the show because I, I try to maintain that, you know, it's not that bad of a swear word, but, you know, I try to maintain that monster sure. kidness here. You know, and that, that stinks. And I'm sorry that happens. I'm encouraged by a movie like this to see that she's not necessarily just written off as that type of a character here. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? I didn't get the feeling that anybody treated her, like you said, you know, they, they deferred to her, they listened to her. You yeah. know, she was able to unbend a little bit with Arthur Cooper. You know, she was at ease with him. Unfortunately, that didn't turn out well for him, but. Well, <laughs> it never does for anybody in these movies, does it? And, and really, if you think about it, there isn't a bad guy or bad girl in this movie. You know, Dr. Zinthrop meant well. In doing his research, he was kind of a little hyper-focused on it, perhaps. He did try to warn Janice about the side effects. You know, she wasn't supposed to take more than the certain amount during a certain time period. And she snuck in and did it anyway. Janice's vanity was semi-justified. I mean, she's trying to support her business. Mm -hmm. And Cooper and Mary and Bill Lane... Yeah, they were kind of getting up in her business, but they were trying to protect her from Zinthrop, who they thought was a con man. Overall, I think it's a solid flick. I think the f- I, I'm glad we talked about it. Um, and I know I go back and forth on the MST3K thing, and I've talked about it here on the mm-hmm. show a lot, and I'm probably going to talk about it here on the show for as long as the show is going. I go back and forth on it, but you and Scott in particular are part of the reasons why I go back and forth on it. Because it is through a channel like MS33K that people get exposed to these movies for the first time. And you said it yourself. The first time you saw this was on, you know, was on MS33K and it's been covered a couple of times on different riffing outlets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it gets people exposed to these kinds of movies and gives them an opportunity or encouragement to go back and watch them straight, you might find something that you like. And it sounds like you did with this one. And so... Curse you, MST3K, for making it hard for me to come down on you one side or the other. <laughs> Curse you. No. Um, the first, I, I have not seen this rift. Um, if I have, it's been forever. Mm-hmm. But the first time I saw it, actually, was when it was showing on TCM, of all places. Interesting. Which I thought was kind of cool. So. And, and kudos to TCM for giving B-movies this kind of exposure. I do appreciate that about them. Every once in a while, they'll go through a phase where you'll see a lot of these movies turn up over a long week. And then, of course, October, they'll bring a lot of them in, too. But I do appreciate that. And they treat them seriously. They don't yes. they don't just throw them out there. They do have the host segment coming on. And, and they, they treat it with 
some reverence. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. And of course, if this movie's in the public domain, I'm sure it's been hosted by a dozens of horror hosts over the years as well i would like to see it hosted just to see what somebody does with it i don't know if sven Gulli's done it or not or uh, sammy terry who's your guys's host in your area i don't know if he's ever done it but i'd like to see it hosted i think this movie could stand up to some hosting especially since it's so short it yeah. would give the host a lot of time to play with yeah i'd love to hear sven Gulli do one of his little musical pieces with it i think there there would be a lot of fun potential there that would be a blast. That would be fun. <laughs> well, I think we kind of talked about the Wasp Woman almost longer than the movie itself, um, <laughs> which is fine. It happens quite a bit here on MKR. But I want to talk a little bit more about some things going on with you, Tracy, because you were one of my table mates at the Monster Bash this past June, and you're going to be a table mate of mine again at next June's Monster Bash, slinging your felt. Yeah. So actually, this this started with last year's Monster Bash, which I did not attend, but Scott did. And he brought back a couple of little felt figurines. They're only about three inches tall. There was a Frankenstein's monster and a Bride of Frankenstein. And I thought they were really cute, but I wanted bigger versions of them. Mm-hmm. So I put them on a scanner, scanned them in, zoomed it up, and made a couple, made copies of each of them for myself. And then Scott said, those are really good. I bet you could sell them at Monster Bash. Well, they weren't my own design. But fortunately, Scott had retained the business card of the person he bought them from, so I reached out to her. Her name is Casey, and you can find her on Cartoon Comics. That's K-A-R-T-O-O-N comics on Facebook and asked, hey, you know, said, hey, I've um, copied your design, um, thinking about maybe offering them for sale. Do you want to split profits? Things like that. And she's like, oh, no, go ahead. I'm sure you've changed it enough that it's now your own thing. Go for it. Which I thought I was really impressed by that she was that that willing to share her design concept and not be offended by the fact that I had I had copied it and done some tweaking. So long story short, um, I started this little enterprise, shall we say, called We Belong Stuffed. <laughs> and I've got fleece creatures that I make, the bride and Frankenstein's monsters I already mentioned. And then I reached out to another creative friend of mine to help design a creature from the Black Lagoon. And so I've got those three designs. I make them in both color, you know, Frank and the bride and the creature green with various highlights and black and white versions. I currently have uh, Casey's Dracula and Wolfman, and I'm going to try to do prototypes of those. And I would love to come up with some sort of side view of Godzilla. So if any listeners out there think they are creative enough to kind of sketch something out that I could use as a pattern, I will trade you that pattern for a stuffed version. Right on. So um, you can, I'll go ahead and post to the Facebook group for Monster Kid Radio. Since my time is kind of limited, I'm probably going to only have time to do maybe two or three commissions a month. 
So I'll kind of post that out there. You guys will get first dibs on it. If you have any questions or ideas for other characters, you know, I kind of tease there, oh, maybe I can do a wasp woman or other types of classic monsters. And I'm more than happy to work with someone on a design. You can reach out to me at webelongstuffed at gmail.com. Oh, wow. You have your own email address now for it, too. Fancy. I know. Now, look at you. (laughs) So I'll post pictures of the creatures, the cuddly creatures that want to follow you home on the Facebook group. And if you're interested, let me know. I've I've got some uh, satisfied customers. I believe Stephen Turek bought one. Um, Frank Delistrito and his wife bought a set. And then displayed them on their table, which just made me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I hope to have a nice stock built up in time for next year's Monster Bash. Uh, And she will be at the Monster Kid radio table. Yes. uh, For next year's Monster Bash. Uh, Plan plan on making the table look awesome and having the little stuffed figures, the felties or you know, the We Belong stuff, whatever we're going to call them, whatever they are, uh, they're going to be on the table as well. And I believe Dominique's going to have some stock there as well. So it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. It'll be fun. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about, the Wasp Woman, I meant to mention, um, have you seen the remake? I have not. I saw it was directed by Jim Wynorski, and I'm familiar, unfortunately, with his work. Oh, no. So I'm, I'm guessing that the Wasp Woman is at least topless for a decent chunk of the movie. Jennifer Rubin plays the, the wasp woman in that, and she uh, did not have a good time oh. on the film. She she didn't like Wynorski, uh, didn't like the experience, just said he was rude. I, um, I can see him not getting the whole women positivity aspect of the original film. Yeah. So I've, I've seen the trailer. That's all I need to see. Yeah. I, I don't think I've even seen the trailer. And, you know, I'm not, I, mean, I know Corman was involved in the remake and you know, good for him for making a buck. But yeah, I just have never seen it. Um, it just doesn't seem like something that I'd be interested in. But it was also apparently remade in the 80s as something mm-hmm. called the Rejuvenator or Rejuvenatrix, which is not something that I was familiar with at all. This is news to me as well. Not seen it, not seen it, not heard about it, don't know anything about it. Directed by Brian Thomas Jones, not familiar with his work at all. The poster that I'm seeing online looks like typical 1980s video rental store horror VHS cover. Mm-hmm. And it's got a big monster on it and lots of bright red text, you know, so... <laughs> I can envision it just from that little bit of description. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know anything about that one either. But I, you know, I'm I'm a traditionalist. Stick to the original. Okay, so we talked about Disney Indiana. We got to talk about where people can find you every other week. Uh, keeping your husband in line at DisneyIndiana.com. <laughs> Before we do that, yeah. Speaking of staying traditional, the Wasp Woman is getting a Blu-ray release this fall. Correct? Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. And when it does come out, I'm going to give it a quick look-see, of course, because I've got to. Mm -hmm. It's my job, right? And so why don't we plan on coming back to talk briefly about the Blu-ray and what we think of it? Sounds like a deal. What do you think? You're on on board? I am on board. Between now and then, though, Disney Indiana, 
com. Yes, we are celebrating our 10th anniversary at the end of July. We dropped our first episode on July 25th, 2008. We have spent the time between then and now discussing pretty much anything related to Disney and the larger Disney family, which now includes Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars and, cross your fingers, Fox. And be on the lookout for the Planet of the Apes retrospective. Hey, hey, wait a minute. I didn't agree to have Scott on the show. Yes, that was my co-host, Scott, jumping in here. <laughs> yes, he, he is thrilled that uh, Zira is going to become a Disney princess. Now, I since Scott's here, I never got a reaction from uh, an image I sent him in which it was explained that 20th Century Fox owns MASH. And uh, that means Klinger becomes a Disney princess, right? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll ask him what he thinks of that. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so basically, uh, Disney Indiana will be able to cover everything from your childhood. Um. <laughs> Just about. A good chunk of it. Um, yeah, but we it's a bi-weekly podcast. We cover movies. We cover video games. We talk about the parks. We talk about old TV shows. Just a little bit of everything. It's it's different every time around. There's There's some consistent segments. Uh, we always call over to the Main Street Cinema in town because in, in our world, Disney Indiana is a real place. Our listeners can call or write in and tell us where they're living in town, have a Disney-related address. And, um, yeah, we have a good time with it. So you can check us out at DisneyIndiana.com. We're on Facebook. You can do a search for Disney Indiana on Facebook as well. We're on iTunes, most of the standard uh, podcast aggregator sites. Well, check it out. There is a link to Disney Indiana in the permalink section of our website over at monsterkidradio.net. And, of course, there'll be a link in the show notes as well because, well, it's what we do. It's we make sure people know how they can get their hands on it. Uh, I'm a fan, so go check it out. Let them know that you heard about it here on Monster Kid Radio. And you'll get to hear more Tracy Morris and her sidekick, Scott. <laughs> Co-host you say co-host, I say, you know, whatever. He's not still on the line, is he? Like, can I keep talking trash? Is that? He, he couldn't even hear you. He just jumped in there. Oh, uh, okay, good, good. So he didn't hear me say what I said about him. No, I'm just. <laughs> you know, since you guys are a Disney podcast, does that make Scott a Disney princess? He's my Prince Charming. Oh, okay. <laughs> or Scruffy Nerf Herder. I'm never sure which. Tracy, you rock. Thank you for being part of the show this week and talking with me about the Wasp Woman. As soon as it comes out on Blu-ray, if it's not too expensive, I'll add it to my library here and I'll check it out. And I'd be real curious to hear what you think of the Blu-ray release as well. And we'll have you back on to kind of revisit the movie and see if the Blu-ray is an actual improvement on the film. I, I don't know, again, what they're doing to the Blu-ray. If there are going to be a lot of special features, it's kind of hard to say. But we'll see. Thanks again, Tracy. Have never lived before as they live now. One man has already died, and the other was never born. Both exist in a world between life and death. Both long to be human. Neither can ever be. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Ten dead men's bodies were used to fashion Dr. Frankenstein's infamous creature. 
tens of dozens of victims have kept Count Dracula alive for three centuries. Only one of these beings will survive their meeting. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Brand new thrills, brand new horror, brand new shock. Dracula versus Frankenstein in color, rated GP. Listen to the flight of the vampire bat summoned from Hades to kill, to destroy. See Kiss of the Vampire in color. What are you looking for under a tombstone in broad daylight? Shh, you'll scare her away. Scare her away? Who? What? What can you scare away here in a cemetery? My ghoul friend. She's the ghost in the invisible bikini. <laughs> what are you putting me on? Herbie, I know you're broad-minded, but this is ridiculous. No, I'm serious. And you should see her since she traded her bedsheet for a bikini. Well, you must enjoy looking around for a real nothing broad. It's really just that American International is inviting everyone out to the graveyard for a blood-curdling blast with the ghost in the invisible bikini to see Tommy Kirk, Deborah Wally, Aaron Kincaid, Harvey Lembeck and Jesse White with Nancy Sinatra and guest stars Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff and Susan Hart in the ghost in the invisible bikini in Path A Color and Panavision. Now, you would have to get commercial. Now, you scared her away. Ooh. end of the show so let's talk about some events that are coming up of course it is getting close to the most wonderful time of the year i actually almost started singing that i i <laughs> what is wrong with me anyway we're getting real close to october and for me traditionally october the halloween season doesn't quote unquote officially start until the hp lovecraft film festival and cthulhu con and that's happening the first weekend of October. Now, no announcements have been made regarding panelists, which means I don't know if I'm going to be a panelist or a guest there, but you know I'm going to go to the festival no matter what, because that's what I do, and I love it, and Gwen and Brian Callahan put on one heck of a show. Now, as of this recording, there is still a few days left to kick in to their Kickstarter. Just go to kickcthulhu.com. Com or follow the link in the show notes. They've already hit their goal. So right now they're working on stretch goals. And even if you're not in the Portland, Oregon area, you can still kick in because there's a way for you to get all sorts of digital goodness, copies of a lot of the movies that are being shown. You'll have material sent to you, DVDs, just all sorts of fun, cool stuff, shirts and hoodies and patches. And just, it's going to be a good time. And I am so looking forward to this year's event because it's tiki themed. I play surf music here on the show. You think I like the tiki thing? Yeah, I do. I can't wait for that. So that's coming up. But also, October, man, there is so much happening. The Northwest Film Center is showing on October 19th, Horror of Dracula. It's a 35-millimeter print. You know I'm going to be there. We're going to organize a Monster Kid radio crash. I know Dominique Lamsey's has told me that, well... I guess we can't be friends if I don't go. Well, I, there's no question. I'm definitely going to that event, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Also, the Fifth Avenue Cinema here in Portland, Oregon, at the end of October, will be showing The Mask from 1961. It's going to be in 3D. I am really looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun as well. And to get into this movie, it's only five bucks. 
as we get closer to the Halloween season, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the events coming up in my neck of the woods. And I'd like to hear about what's coming up in your neck of the woods. So please call us at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. And let us know about any events, conventions, festivals, anything you've got going on that you think Monster Kids might be interested in. I'd like to hear from you and I'll put you on the show and let people know how they can Join you for some Monster Kid fun. Do a Monster Kid radio crash in your neck of the woods. On Halloween, you can do a virtual Monster Kid radio crash because on Halloween day, all day long, probably going to start around nine-ish in the morning Pacific time, I'm going to start showing movies on Rabbit TV. Head over to rabb.it. Now, this is free. And the reason you want to set up an account is because we're going to be showing movies through this and there's going to be a live chat happening the entire time. I'm going to be sitting here glued to the screen, interacting with whoever happens to show up. I'm really looking forward to it. On Halloween day, I typically just binge watch nothing but classic monster movies. Well, this time I can do it with you through Rabbit TV. So again, R-A-B-B dot I-T. And when you set up your account, look for username, Monster Kid Radio, all one word, no spaces, and send me a request and we'll become contacts or friends or whatever it is Rabbit does to connect people so that I can invite you to the private chat when it happens on Halloween day. It's going to be so cool. Oh man, it's going to be awesome. Of course, there's links to all of this over at monsterkidradio.net, which is our website. You can find our voicemail line as well as our email address, which was monsterkidradio at gmail.com. There'll be links to everything that I talked about in the show in the show notes as well. Oh, hey, and just because I meant to say this earlier and I forgot, I know that the music in the trailer for that movie, It, sounded really familiar. Yeah, it's from Hammer Films' Mummy movie. It's from the Hammer Film. I don't know why it's in there. But it is. So, yeah. Anyway, should have said that earlier in the episode. And I probably could go in and edit it. But you know what? I just want to get this show out because I'm really proud of having all the segments here and having Tracy on the show and talking about the Wasp Woman. My wife is not on the show this week. I mentioned this last week. She is actually going to Alaska for her grandmother's funeral. I put her on the plane early this morning when we drove to the Portland airport at 2.30 a.m., I got home around 3.30 or so, and it took me till about 4 o'clock to finally fall asleep. So today's been kind of a wash for me, but, you know, we had the show to do, and I want to get it out to you guys and gals. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up and let you know that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Now, if you head over to our website, you'll find a link to the band Havanera Surf. And you can click through and pick up their album, Costa Brava, so you can hear songs like Bikini Storm and the rest of the songs on their EP release. I'm out of here. Enjoy the music. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.